we are going to be in the book of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 1. All the way at the end of the Bible. If you're not used to handling a Bible or you don't have one with you, there should be Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. You can grab one of those. The book of Revelation is the very last book of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 1. Those chapters are the big numbers. The verses are the small numbers. This morning we're going to begin in verse 9 and we're going to go all the way to verse 20. Well, as I'm sure would come as no surprise for many of you, C.S. Lewis's famous fiction work, The Chronicles of Narnia, are some of our favorite in our house. We love the books and we love the movies, as cheesy as they are in spots. We love it. And one of the things that you find when you're reading The Chronicles of Narnia is that Aslan is not one-dimensional. He is multi-dimensional. And the children know this. The children know that he is loving. And yet at the same time, they know that he is not safe. That at the same time, the children wanted to bury their heads in his mane. They wanted to feel his breath. And yet they trembled at the sight of him. Lewis describes Aslan's paw this way as it touches Peter. It says, though it was velveted, it was very heavy. Jesus is like that. In some ways, soft and velveted, and in other ways, heavy and sharp. David Murrow, in the book that he wrote some years ago, Why Men Hate Going to Church, created a table, kind of a, a list, two lists side by side, with a left column and a right column, it was a list that he would show to hundreds of people. In the left column, he had a list of qualities or attributes, trying to decide which set of values ultimately described Christ and his followers. Well, on the left column were words like competence, power, efficiency, achievement, skills, proving oneself, results, Accomplishment, objects, technology, goal-oriented, success, self-sufficiency, competition. On the right column, there were 14 additional words that went like this. Love, communication, beauty, relationship, support, help, nurturing, feelings, sharing, relating, harmony, community, loving cooperation, and personal expression. And he would show this chart to hundreds of people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, asking which one of them they preferred or which one was most attractive, and 95% chose the column on the right. The one that was love, beauty, support, help, sharing, relating, harmony, and the like. Well, what's interesting is he got both of these lists from a book that was published some years earlier from his book called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. In the left column, he described from this book, he just listed all of the masculine qualities. And in the right, he listed all of the feminine qualities. And Murrow's point 
is that we tend to think about Jesus more in terms of feminine virtues. Now, I've read the book. I think he overstates the case, and I think he tends to conflate categories in ways that aren't that helpful. And yet, his broader point is still poignant. Do we have a one-dimensional Jesus? Is he all soft? Or is he all hard? Do we take his humanity or do we take his divinity, his suffering or his glory, his forgiveness or his wrath, his intimacy with him? Or do we hail and laud him as the all-conquering supreme ruler? The relevant question for us is, have we turned Jesus merely into a tame lion? Revelation 1 doesn't paint a portrait of a tame Jesus. It does not paint a portrait of suburban Jesus. The Jesus of Revelation 1 roars and claws and stands majestic and triumphant over the world that he has made. And in verses 9 through 20, the risen Christ appears in glory to capture the imagination of John's audience and to constrain their obedience as they seek to become overcomers in the world. And so John is going to use the most exalted and the most glorious imagery to, to describe our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, read along with me, picking up in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining at full strength. Oh, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, and as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Though perhaps at times difficult to understand, every single word is true. And we can trust it. It is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and for training in righteousness so that every single one of us would be equipped for every good work. Well, we're going to see no less than two things. We're going to behold, on the one hand, the glory of Christ, and then, on the tail end of beholding the glory of Christ, we're going to receive the grace of Christ. We're going to see, behold the glory of Christ. That's primary and primarily in verses 9 through 16, verses 19 and 20. And then we're going to receive the grace of Christ in verses 17 and 18. And what I want to do is focus first on this first idea, beholding the glory of Christ. And as we do in verses 9 through 16, we're going to consider who John is. We're going to consider what John heard, and we're going to consider what John saw. In verse 9, let's consider who John is. We notice that John is an exile. Specifically, he's an exile for his faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was preaching the gospel. He's now been persecuted, and he has been banished. Depending on how you date the book of Revelation, John is somewhere between 70 and 90 years old. For those of you who are much more mature than others in this room, how's your retirement going? between 70 and 90 years old. But notice here in verse 9 that John describes himself not only as a brother, but as a partner. Specifically, he's a partner in three things. Notice, first of all, he is a partner in the tribulation. John has taken up his cross. That being an overcomer doesn't mean that we avoid and we ignore pain in our lives. We're not Buddhists. We believe it exists. We invite it into our lives even when it's for the sake of Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Though many tribulate, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world Promise peace, but deliver only tribulation. The kingdom of God promises tribulation, but delivers peace. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, friend, if you're a visitor with us, your best life is not now. Your best life will begin if you are in Christ when the skies are split with the shout of the archangel. And when you patiently endure afflictions in this life for the gospel's sake, you partner with the Old Testament prophets, you partner with the Lord Jesus, and you partner with his disciples. And so we need to overcome our fear of suffering. We don't need to like it, but we ought to expect it if we're to be faithful to the gospel of Christ. And so if we are not suffering for our faith in some small way, maybe not church bombings on an Easter morning, but those who have reviled you because of your moral and ethical stances that you have to take as one who would faithfully follow Jesus, 
as perhaps one who has been ridiculed or even deserted because of your audacity to tell others that they are sinners in need of the grace of God. Whatever it may be, that if we are not suffering for our faith in some way, even if some small way, we should wonder if we have somehow compromised for our Lord. So John is a partner in the tribulation, but secondly, notice, he's a partner in the kingdom. So the Christian life isn't just a story of gloom and pain and woe. He doesn't just end with tribulation. That we, even though we have tribulation, are part of an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed because we belong to Jesus. And Jesus is the king. And he has dealt death its final blow at the cross. We are victorious. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He says that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors because of Christ. But he doesn't just partner in the tribulation. He doesn't just partner in the kingdom. He also thirdly partners in the patient endurance. See that in verse 9? That word used there for endurance is a word used for long-distance runners. That the Christian life isn't a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. That's why John tells his disciples in John 16, or rather, Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. And then he encourages them to endure, to press on, to press through the burning muscle and the fatigue, so to speak. Why? He says, take heart. You're going to get to the finish line. Why? I have overcome the world. So John says, suffering, kingdom, patience. That's John's experience in the Christian life. And it was the experience of those who would first read John's revelation. And it is the experience of every faithful saint who seeks to obey Christ in all things in a world that is opposed to him. We're continuing, look at this in verse 10. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day, this is the day that the church set aside for public worship. And during that day, he was caught up in the spirit. He had a spirit-induced prophetic vision. And in his vision, he heard a voice. And that voice was like a trumpet. In the Old Testament, a trumpet was used in battle or it was used to announce something. Well, here in this instance, the voice is announcing specifically, verse 11, write what you see in a book. And then I want you to send it to the churches. So John's going to write down this vision. He's going to send it to the seven churches that you see there in the rest of verse 11. All of these cities are in geographic order. In fact, they're shaped kind of like a horseshoe. And so as John writes this revelation, he's going to send it first to Ephesus, and then it's going to circulate through messengers from one church to the other until it ends in Laodicea. What is it that he's going to write? Well, we see that in verse 19. Glance down at that. The risen Lord says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those things which are to take place. 
He says, I want you to write down everything I've done. I want you to write down everything that I'm doing. And I want you to write down everything that I will do. And I want you to send this book to the churches so that they might be strengthened as overcomers in this world as they seek to live faithfully for the gospel. And so what is this vision then that he's to write down? What is it that he saw? We'll pick up in verse 12. We see that he sees Jesus, in verse 12, standing in the midst of golden lampstands. And we know, as we read in verse 20, that the lampstands are the seven churches. And we see that each one of these churches is represented by an angel. There's many interpretations of that. Some people believe that the angel is really just a pastor, or perhaps it's a, it's a human messenger that's taking the book from church to church. But in every instance of the use of the word angel in the book of, the Re- book of Revelation, it is speaking of an actual spiritual being. That these are angels that serve these churches as messengers and emissaries from God. Just like you see in the book of Genesis with angels ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder to serve the saints, to strengthen them, to help them endure as they suffer. Well, that's what they do here. And so there is an angel that's, in a sense, representing each one of these churches. When we go back to verses 12 and 13, we've got to ask the question, why is the symbolism of the lampstands in the churches so important? We saw that the lampstands are symbolic of the seven spirits of God because each church is a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells and is burning And here we have Jesus standing in the midst of these lampstands and he's tending them the way that high priests would tend the lampstands in the Old Testament temple. In fact, when you look at verse, at the end of verse 12, or verse 13 rather, we see that he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These are priestly garments. So one of the responsibilities of the priest in the tabernacle was to tend to the candles. They were to trim the wicks. They were to make sure that there was enough oil that the candles would never go out. They would tend to the menorah, which had seven candles. And here we have seven lampstands. All of this is reminiscent of the temple in the Old Testament. And so the high priest was responsible then to oversee them and to make sure that they endured in staying lit. And that is the role that Jesus plays among his churches. He is the one that makes sure that these churches remain empowered by the Spirit and endure all the way to the end. This is a really high view of the church. Because the church is the place where the Spirit burns. And the church is where Jesus, the high priest, is tending to his duties on our behalf. The church is where Christ, through the Spirit, dwells with his people, tending them correcting them, trimming them, causing them to endure and stay lit all the way to the end. And just as the lampstands were indicative of the presence of God dwelling with his people in the temple, so these lampstands are indicative of God dwelling with his churches, that the church is the true and better temple, and God dwells with us through his spirit. Well, in verses 13 through 16, he keeps going. In fact, he sees there One like a son of man. You see that there in verse 13? 
He sees one like a son of man. It's the son of man standing in the middle of the lampstands. And if you want to understand what he's talking about here, then we're going to have to go to our left a little bit. So keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to go to your left to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. About two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, keep going to your right. If you see Zechariah, Hosea, some of the minor prophets, go back to your left. Daniel is right in the middle of all of that. Daniel chapter 7. This was our call to worship this morning. So John saw one like a son of man standing in the middle of the lampstands. Where does he get that from? Look at Daniel 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions. And behold, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus in John's vision is identified as the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. But that's not all. Because John also sees in Jesus the qualities of the ancient of days. Just glance a little bit higher in, in verse 9, staying in Daniel chapter 7. And as I looked, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And so in Daniel's vision here in Daniel chapter 7, he has two exalted figures. He has on the one hand the Ancient of Days and on the other hand he has the Son of Man. Well, when you go to Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus, the Son of Man, looking like the Ancient of Days, standing in the middle of the lampstands. That Jesus, the Messiah, is God, very God. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, keep your finger there at Daniel 7 to go back to Revelation 1. Because we're going to go back to Daniel in just a minute, so don't lose your spot. But if you look back at Revelation chapter 1, do you notice these elements? The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a, in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like a sun shining in full strength. Every single element of the description of Jesus in Revelation 1 comes from some Old Testament reference to God or to the Messiah. And I know for many of you, the book of Revelation seems like an intimidating book. But the book of Revelation is really like when I give my daughter one of those fancy connect the dots books, what the book of Revelation is really doing in a sense is an Old Testament commentary. And it's taking all of these various dots and it's connecting it so that you might see how all these dots connect and form a portrait of not only the king, but of his kingdom. 
and what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do when he returns. And so John is connecting all the dots and every element of the description of Jesus here in Revelation 1 is connecting Old Testament dots. The voice like the trumpet that we saw at the beginning, that comes from Exodus 19. That Jesus is the one speaking to Moses. God standing in the midst of the lampstands, that's Zechariah 4. The Son of Man, as we saw, was Daniel 7. The robe and the sash is Exodus 28. The white hair, as we saw, was Daniel 7. His eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, well, that's Daniel 10. His voice like the roar of many waters, that's Ezekiel 43. And that sharp sword, which is symbolic of the word of God that will strike down the enemies of God, that's Isaiah 49. John is just cobbling together Old Testament references to give a complete picture of who Christ is, connecting the dots for us. But we need to understand something. This isn't a literal picture of what Jesus is like, of what Jesus looks like, rather. This isn't a literal picture of what Jesus looks like. This is a picture of what Jesus is like. It's his qualities, it's his character. That he is robed with majesty and clothed with priestly authority. He is strong like rushing waters and he is pure like burnished bronze. His convicting gaze pierces like a laser and his words cut like a knife. And his face, it shines in brilliant holiness like the sun. Is it any wonder then in verse 17 that having glimpsed this Christ that John didn't rush up to hug him that John didn't casually walk up to him to shake his hand. No, did you see what John did? He fell at his feet as though dead. In fact, we find that all through the Bible, this is a common response to one who has been confronted with the glory and the majesty of Christ. You should have held your finger in Daniel. Go back there, but I want you to go forward just a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. You're going to see more of the language that John uses in Revelation chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, or verse 4 rather. On the 24th day of the first month as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphas around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. Sound familiar? His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. We've heard that before. And the sound of his words are like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone stood or saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and I saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and I heard the sound of his words and I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And tell me if this sounds familiar. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you 
and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and then he said to me, Fear not. It's not the only place that we see this. Turn to your right to the book of Matthew, chapter 17. We see this also in the transfiguration of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. John, the very John that's writing down everything in a book that Jesus is showing him. That's his revelation. And he took John with him and he led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face, tell me if this sounds familiar, shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And then around him, behold, came Moses and Elijah. Peter says, you want me to build something for everyone? And this is what they hear, verse 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But then Jesus came, tell me if this sounds familiar, and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Could it be that we take Jesus not as seriously as we should? Could it be that you and I perhaps are far too familiar with Jesus? Could it be that we've made him into our own image Thoughtful, relational, tolerant, and nice. Could it be that we have felt and love his soft, velveted paw, but we have not felt it to be very heavy at all? Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, some of you have read it. Helpful in some ways, not so helpful in others. He writes this at the end of his book. He says, all great characters and stories are the ones who give their lives to something bigger than themselves. And in all the stories, I don't find anyone more noble than Jesus. He gave his life for me in obedience to his Father. I truly love him for it. I think the difference in my life came when I realized after reading those Gospels that Jesus didn't just love me out of principle. He didn't just love me because it was the right thing to do. Rather, there was something inside me that caused him to love me. Well, that's not so right. I think I realized that if I walked up to his campfire, he would ask me to sit down. And he would ask me my story. And he would take the time to listen to my ramblings or my anger until I could calm down. And then he would look at me directly in the eye and he would speak to me and he would tell me the truth. And I would sense in his voice and in the lines in his face that he liked me. And he would rebuke me too, and he would tell me that, that I have prejudice against people that, that I need to deal with. And he would tell me that there are poor people in the world that I need to feed them, and that somehow this will make me more happy. I think he would tell me that what my gifts are, and why I have them. And he would give me ideas on how to use them. 
I think he would point out very clearly all the ways that God has taken care of me through the years and all the stuff that God has protected me from. Now listen, there are true things spoken here. Jesus does like us, praise the Lord. He does speak truth. He does care about our hurts. He is a sympathetic high priest and he is patient with our ramblings of persistent widows. But the Jesus in this paragraph is little more than a therapist. He tells us what our gifts are and he explains our dysfunctions. That he's about something bigger than himself and that thing which is bigger than himself is us. That is a domesticated Jesus. The Jesus... Now listen, Donald Miller may believe many more things about Jesus than what he wrote here. I trust that he does. But if this is our conception of Jesus alone, it is insufficient. Jesus is more than a coping mechanism. That we may desire fellowship with a kind and caring Jesus, and that's true. That's part of who he is. But if he is to help us in any real way, he must be more than a sensitive listener. He must be strong, and he must be mighty, and he must be glorious. I want you to compare Donald Miller's vision of Jesus with Jonathan Edwards. I know this is apples and oranges. And I want you to consider before I read that Edwards was not at all scared of intimacy with God. He wept and he marveled at Christ. So he knew the velvety paw of Christ, but he also knew that paw to be heavy. He says this once in 1737, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and as wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. Think Velvety Paul. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. And I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. Think the way that John responded to the vision of Christ. That's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. I wanted to be emptied. I wanted to be annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and a pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and to follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and a heavenly purity. A therapeutic Jesus doesn't evoke an ardency of soul that wishes to be emptied of self and annihilated and filled only with Christ and purified with a heavenly purity. Only a great, grand, glorious Jesus can do that. You need a resurrected Christ for that. And yet at the same time, we do want comfort, don't we? We do want Jesus to listen, and praise God, he does. 
better than any one of us, infinitely so. But we're too often tempted, I think, to shrink Jesus and to make him more like us when what we really need is a radiant, glorified, resurrected, mighty to save Jesus. And that is our comfort. It's the glory of Jesus that we see here in verses 12 through 16. The glory of Jesus that makes way for the grace of Jesus. It is the majesty of Jesus that paves the way for the mercy of Jesus, which we'll see in verse 17 and 18. So we've beheld the glory of Christ, and now in these final two verses, we'll receive the grace of Christ. In these two verses, Jesus is going to give five messages of grace and truth for believers. So if you're back in Revelation chapter 1, look there, his first word that he gives to John and that he speaks to us is fear not. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's not because God is terrifying to us, to those of us who are in Christ by faith. It's not because God is terrifying to us, but because God is terrifying and he is on our side. That he is strong and he is glorious. And if you are in Christ by faith, he is for us. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid of me. And don't be afraid of those who hate you or reject you because of what you believe. Or those who are hostile against you those in your family or the devil or those who want to make your life hard or bring tribulation into your life. He says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41 verse 10. So he says, fear not. But then he says the second thing, notice this. He says, I am the first and the last. If you're in here and you are one who regularly fears losing control of your life, which you do every night when you go to sleep, by the way, but God has built it into your system to need to lose total control over your life so that when you close your eyes, the only way that your world keeps spinning is if Jesus delights to do so that he upholds all things by the power of his word. He doesn't need you for that. And yet every single one of us is tempted, aren't we, to white-knuckle our lives. Well, if that's you and you're tempted and you are constantly wrapped with fear when things are spinning out of control, fear not. That because Jesus is the first and the last, he is before and after all things. And because he is before and after all things, he is sovereign over all things. And because he is sovereign over all things, he is directing all things toward his appointed end. And there is nothing in this world, there is nothing in creation that will thwart an ounce of his purposes, including your own unbelief. He will accomplish everything he sets out to accomplish. I am the first 
and the last. But then he says, thirdly, I am the living one. I am the living one. Do not believe the lie that God is a bad guy in your life. Oh, brother and sister, if you're one of our friends here visiting with us and life has been hard and tribulation has come and it feels difficult to overcome, the devil would have you believe that God's aim is to make you miserable with all of his absoluteness and all of his commands and all of his laws and all of his demands of worship and of absolute allegiance, but the devil is a liar. He is the destroyer. He's a murderer, the Bible says. But Jesus says something different. I am the living one. That Jesus has come to give life to the full. If you will turn from trusting in yourself, if you will turn from finding your life in this world, and you would seek to find your life solely, totally, ultimately by faith alone in Christ alone. Have you done that? Is Jesus your life? That's why he confesses, or, or, or teaches rather, I am not only the resurrection, but because I'm the resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the living one. And he aims to give you life if you will trust him. But then fourthly, notice this, he says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. I was living, then I was dead, and now I'm alive. Do you believe Easter's true? Do you believe that this guy, Jesus, is more than just a guy? That he was there, stone cold, dead in the tomb, and that now he lives. Oh, friend, if you're visiting with us today, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is alive now and forevermore, is at the very heart of Christianity. If you pull that thread out of the gospel, our entire faith unravels. Everything hinges on whether Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of that grave or didn't. Whether Easter is true and we have hope unlike anyone in the world or Easter is the greatest fabricated lie in history and we are above all to be pitied. Jesus says, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Christ is risen. Uh, you can do better than that. Christ is risen. Amen. If you believe that, why do you doubt his promises? If you believe that Christ is risen from the dead, why do you doubt his promises? He brings dead people back to life. Why have you given up on your marriage or your kids or that family member or that friend if you worship a God that brings dead things back to life? Why are you caving into the culture and acting like the world? Why do you worry so much about hundreds and millions of different things, much less what the world thinks about you? Why are you so full of bitterness when you worship and confess a Savior who died and now lives? Where is your security? Where have you dropped your anchor 
Is it in this world with all of its shifting shadows? Or is your anchor now dropped behind the veil? Is your anchor Christ? I was dead. And behold, I am alive, not just now, but forevermore. And then he says, fifthly and finally, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now, Jesus may be saying, I'm sovereign over your life and over your death, and I think that's true. He is sovereign over every single one of our destinies. You are not the master of your destiny. Jesus is. But more than that, what Jesus means here is that death cannot hold you because he has the key that unlocks the door. You're dead, you're put away, the door is locked, Jesus comes and he says, I can get you out of there. That you shall live even after you die. So get this, the main goal in your life is not just to stay alive as long as you can. That is not why we're here. We pray for healing, we thank God for medicine, but life is about so much more than not dying. And you know what? You're gonna die. And there are some of you in here that I know that is a fearsome prospect and a source of anxiety. But that is not the end of the story because Christ holds the keys to death in Hades. You're going to die, but you are going to live. That in Christ, because he has overcome the world, our goal by his grace is to be an overcomer. That's why the author to Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 9, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That those who are in Christ by faith will die once, but they will live twice. Those who reject Christ and his gospel, friend, listen to me. You will live only once, but you will die twice. That only in Christ, because he has the keys to death in Hades, can you die and then live forevermore with him. That's Easter. Brothers and sisters, Friends, is your Jesus too small? Is your Jesus the Jesus of Revelation 1? Is your Jesus the Jesus of Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 and Zechariah 4, Ezekiel 43? Is, it, is that your Jesus? Or is he merely a tamed lion? A therapeutic Jesus. We are those who know that Jesus, though he is good, he is not safe.